Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. In the hierarchy of the State Department, the Secretary of State, of course, sits on top. Below the Secretary of State is the Deputy Secretary of State, and below the Deputy Secretary is the number three post at the State Department, the Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs. According to a recent report in Bloomberg by the journalist Nick Wadhams, Paula Dobriansky has been tapped to serve in that number three spot. Wadhams cites three sources familiar with the decision, though neither Dobriansky nor the White House have commented at the time I'm recording this. But if indeed Paula Dobriansky becomes the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, she will be the highest-ranking official in the Trump administration who has appeared on this very podcast. So I thought it would be worthwhile to revisit my conversation with her. We spoke in June 2015. At the time, Dobriansky was at Harvard, having served in the George W. Bush administration as Undersecretary of State for Democracy and Global Affairs. And in our conversation, we spent a good deal of time discussing her background, her academic interests, and her career serving four administrations. She is of Ukrainian descent and entered college interested in studying the Soviet Union. She earned her PhD writing about Soviet foreign policy and was a well-regarded Sovietologist and later Russia expert. We kicked off discussing what was at the time an escalating situation in Ukraine before having a longer conversation about her career. What I find interesting looking back at this interview in the context of her possibly joining the Trump administration is that she comes from a fairly traditional Republican foreign policy background. She's consistently opposed Russian aggression and has embraced the value of spreading democracy and human rights as in the national interests of the United States. You could probably fairly describe her as a neoconservative. She is certainly very thoughtful and was, I should say, very gracious with me in this interview. So yeah, as I mentioned at the outset, if indeed this reporting is solid and I see no reason to believe why it's not, then Paula Dobransky would be the first Global Dispatches podcast guest to serve in the upper ranks of the Trump administration. You know, I've had former heads of state, at least one currently serving cabinet official during the Obama administration, several former cabinet officials on the podcast, but... Paula Dobransky uh, would be the milestone of of having a uh, former podcast guest serve in the Trump administration. So I thought it would be worthwhile and timely to revisit this conversation with Paula Dobransky from June 2015. So here it is. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
So let's let's uh, start with that, if that's okay. okay. About right. uh, on on Ukraine. I mean, we're speaking in what appears to be a a period of of escalation. I, I suppose there was this article in the New York Times, um, I guess earlier this week, uh, about potential U.S. plans to station heavy equipment in the Baltic states. What's your what's your take on on that plan? And and you know, is that like a move you would support? Well, let me let me start with this, if if I may, Mark, uh, and thank you for having me. Um, uh, the Prime Minister of Ukraine, Yatsenyuk, was visiting Washington D.C. recently, and he and his Minister of Finance were talking about their concerns, uh, the fact that the Minsk uh, to ceasefire a ceasefire that was concluded uh, a number of months ago is, has not been held. One of the appeals that he made was, in fact, an appeal that the Ukrainian government has been making, which has been to get uh, military assistance, um, assistance in the form of different types of equipment so that they could defend themselves. So toward this end, if one looks at the statements made by a number of NATO officials, they have expressed concern about what's been happening on the ground, that the situation has not been subsiding, but instead that uh, there has been an enhancement of aggression from Russia, and as a result, uh, a stronger appeal from the Ukrainians for military assistance. Um, Hence, I think, the kind of action that you see being taken. Uh, my own view, I, I do believe that there are several ways to assist Ukraine. I do think that it is fair to adhere to the requests made not only by the Ukrainians for military hardware to enable them to defend themselves, but also a number of the countries that are bordering Ukraine, uh, like the Baltic states and Poland, They've also made a strong appeal for a number of months now uh, for assistance, for heightened exercise, for uh, also even the new president-elect of Poland Mm -hmm. said that when the Warsaw-NATO summit takes place that they want to see a permanent basing of NATO troops, which has not been the case. Uh, it was something that we had respected as part of an agreement with Russia. Mm-hmm. And the Poles believe that the circumstances on the ground warrant a revisiting of that issue. And that was that but, issue was basically the, the NATO would expand to the Baltics and to Eastern Europe, but with the understanding that the U.S. wouldn't um, potentially antagonize Russia by stationing troops there, right? Well, uh, uh, the Poles have asked for a permanent, actually mm-hmm. a permanent uh, basing. Uh, that had not been the case before, uh, meaning that we had agreed uh, at the time of Gorbachev that there is uh, what constitutes a, as he put it, a Europe whole, and we work together. So there was an agreement that with the NATO expansion that there wouldn't be such a permanent basing of troops. In this case, the appeal is for a permanent basing that, again, the aggression on the ground warrants that, that there needs to be a kind of deterrent. Mm -hmm. If you also look at the statements made by uh, General Breedlove, uh, they also point in this direction, although he hasn't said that that is what's going to happen, 
but he acknowledges the kind of concern that's manifested by these NATO countries and, you know, their concern about future aggressions. I guess is may the I lo- add, may, sorry, may yeah, I, please, yeah, go ahead. May, may I add one other piece? You focus on the military piece, but I think an interesting part of this is also the economic. And when the prime minister came to Washington, he and his finance minister focused very extensively on the economic piece because Ukraine is in the midst of dealing with its debt. And for it enable, for it to be enabled to undertake the IMF reforms and to deal with the issue of corruption head on, it does need some breathing space in terms of debt reduction. And I think they made a very compelling case for not only uh, the public side, meaning the governmental side, to revisit the terms and the amount of assistance or guarantees, you know, loans given or extended to Ukraine, but also the private side. So I wanted to add that into this discussion because it's not just only about the, the military component, which is right afoot, but by the way, right in front of us is also the issue of the economic uh, side. Um, so I, I know that uh, your interest, your expertise uh, has been in, in uh, studying Russia, studying, I guess, the Soviet Union uh, back in way back when. Where does that interest lie? Where, where did you first become interested and fascinating with stu- fascinated with studying the USSR? Well, I'd even broaden it, if I may. I, I first was uh, very interested in Europe at large. Um, my own heritage, I happen to be, uh, by the way, of Ukrainian descent. Um, but I will say that my interest in Europe at large was generated from my courses and my professors at Georgetown University. Mm-hmm. I was in the School of Foreign Service. And in that program, uh, in particular, I took a number of, of courses, and most significantly, I went on a junior year abroad program. I studied in the Netherlands. At that time, we took a trip, actually, to um, Berlin, uh, which was at the time, as you know, based in East Germany. We went to both East and West Berlin. We also went to Brussels and to Strasbourg and to Paris and visited all of the European institutions. So first, my interest was very broad in that context. Mm -hmm. As I went on and I pursued my graduate studies and got my master's and PhD, I refined it more and really took a a keen interest in then the Soviet Union and looking at um, uh, uh, the fabric of the Soviet Union, the various uh, countries, uh, that were part of it, Ukraine uh, at the time, the uh, uh, we had the Baltic states, there was the non-recognition policy of the forced incorporation of the Baltic states, mm-hmm. Russia, and so forth. So, where, so I so, would say it started broadly, and then it evolved more um, specifically in terms of, uh, of Russia. Did you grow up in, in the D.C. area? I did. I grew up uh, in uh, Virginia. Um, in fact, I attended Thomas Jefferson High School, which is the number one high school in the nation uh, as a public high school. Where is that? In like Fairfax County? That is in Fairfax yeah, County. Yeah, I would imagine. 
Um, it is now, though, the number one high school. Admittedly, when I was there, it was a different school. It is now a magnet school to which students compete for. Um, but uh, uh, I, I, I'm nevertheless affiliated. And how far back is your Ukrainian heritage? Like, Were your grandparents My immigrants? Grandparents. Okay. My grandparents uh, were born in Ukraine on each side of my family in different parts, one more in central Ukraine, the other more in sort of southwestern. And then uh, both sides, the grandparents immigrated to the United States. Mm -hmm. And my parents were born in the United States. Okay, yeah, my my great-grandparents are from Moldova. Uh, Not too far. Not Although it's it's probably Transnistria right now, it's a little hard to decide what who, who exactly controls the territory in which they were born. Mm-hmm. Um, as is often the case in in that part of the world. Um, so, uh, did you grow up speaking any Ukrainian? I I do know some Ukrainian, and I also studied Russian. Um, I also studied French, uh, and then because I was in the Netherlands, even Dutch. Even Dutch. <laughs> so, it's very hard to learn Dutch, I must say. I spent a lot of I've spent a lot of time in the Netherlands because everyone there speaks better English than you and I. Uh, <laughs> it's been my experience. Um, so that's uh, moilik. That's the word. It is difficult. It, it is, is difficult. Oh, okay, so you speak admittedly far more Dutch than I. Um, <laughs> uh, so what? So so you did you go straight from grad school to get a PhD? I took a year off, actually. Uh, you said straight from grad school. I assume you meant undergrad. Undergrad. Uh, I, I, I went, I finished Georgetown School of Foreign Service. And quite honestly, I was sort of debating what direction I wanted to go in. Many of my colleagues at Georgetown went on into the Foreign Service. Many went on to law school during my time. Not so many in business. And so I decided to take a year off. And that year, I worked uh, uh, in Capitol Hill on the Joint Economic Committee. And I'm glad I took that year off because that gave me an opportunity to really think about what direction I wanted to go in. I did apply to a number of programs. And in the end, uh, I ended up uh, at Harvard University in the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences and getting my um, master's and my Ph.D. there. And uh, who are your, who are the people that you were studying under uh, back then? And what was Adam Blom, who is now deceased, but uh, really a very very well known and respected Russian scholar. Um, also, uh, Richard Pipes uh, was someone who I also interacted with, and then also not uh, so Russia based, but more broadly based. My other uh, advisor, my two primary advisors were Adam Ulam and then also Samuel Huntington, who also is now deceased. But as you know, he wrote a number of books and one with Zbigniew Brzezinski in which they looked at particularly the relationship with the United States between the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, yeah, Huntington. I mean, I, I uh, recently interviewed Fried Zakaria, who also had Huntington on his uh, thesis oh. advisor as a thesis advisor. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and, and and he tells a story about how he sort of repaid the favor by publishing Clash of Civilizations in Foreign Affairs, <laughs> um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you could call it that. Um, so, what? So, what specifically did you decide to study ab- about uh, Russia? What was your what was your PhD focus? What was your I research was, focus? I was at the time, you know, my generation was very much consumed with, particularly many of the arms negotiations that were going on. 
And so a lot of my own work was focused on uh, uh, then what constituted Soviet foreign policy and at the same time looking at what was happening also with regard to their defense policy. And uh, one of the things that I especially looked at, I started looking at, were their military determinants of Soviet foreign policy. What does that mean? Could you uh, you describe what that means? Well, specifically, you know, looking at uh, uh, the defense side and looking at the investments that were being made in the military and also military policies that were being undertaken, you know, what, did they have any ramifications at all for foreign policy? Or were decisions made like, you know, Prague in 68 or Budapest in 56 or Afghanistan, were these purely political decisions? And um, I think that, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a question that basically isn't always examined and looked at. And I, I think one can say that uh, there are and there have been military influences into political decisions that have been made. In other words, strategic decisions. Uh, like what? Like what was a good example that you're studying? I guess this was probably like the mid-80s. Uh, I was, um, studying and that's correct. Uh, the time frame was roughly in the eighties. Uh, Afghanistan was certainly one of the, uh, uh, you know, cases to be looked at because again, the question of, you know, uh, the invasion into Afghanistan, um, like I said, was this purely a political one? then what happens when you bring your military in and you're in a certain kind of terrain where, you know, not necessarily the kind of warfare that's being conducted is this one that you are capable of dealing with. We know in hindsight what happened in terms of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. It had significant impact in terms of a drawdown on resources, There was also the issue of, as I've indicated, the kind of warfare and whether or not, you know, they they were capable of adapting to it. But yet we also know that this was also part of Soviet uh, uh, foreign policy at the time of looking at opportunities for um, uh, uh, aggrandizing uh, their sphere. If I had to give kind of a parallel, you know, with the U.S., I mean, going through the mix to, to sort of put this in context, remember with the United States with Vietnam, although the fundamental difference is uh, there was no invasion, <laughs> meaning on our part, we were brought in to help. So, but, but when we went in, you know, there were challenges militarily. So this was definitely, um, as I say it, I use it very loosely because we did not go in and invade, but we were asked in. But the challenges of the military and the kind of warfare on the ground was a difficult one. So with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, here you had a challenge on the ground um, in terms of uh, specifically um, they're not adapting uh, to the circumstances. Um, how do you go about researching a project like this? Did you, were you able to, to go to, to Moscow? Uh, at the time, uh, most of my research was conducted through 
not on site and going to, you're asking me, going to Moscow. It was mostly done through um, resources. There were many writings um, um, uh, that were available in Russian, you know, on these topics. Mm -hmm. There were also articles, books written from other perspectives, uh, some interviews. Also. I mean, I ask because it's got to be like very. Was not traveling. Yeah. There, I mean, it's got to be like very, I can't imagine them like granting you a visa to, to study um, to study what you were trying to study. It would be seemingly. Um, a difficult, difficult thing for them to agree to. Well, uh, at the time, that's correct. At the time that I was doing my work and in terms of having access, but you asked me how it was conducted. Mm. No, it was not conducted by going to uh, to Moscow. That wouldn't have been the uh, possibility. But in terms of uh, research material, books, articles uh, by different uh, uh, Russian writers, scholars, uh, statements made by officials, things of that nature. Um, those were uh, there were materials that certainly were available for for usage. And so, what? So, so you you have this PhD in hand. Uh, eventually, what was your next move? I went and I worked in the White House at the National Security Council. Okay. In fact, we talked about Richard Pipes. And actually, uh, and also Samuel Huntington, Samuel Huntington had shared with his graduate students that the White House at the time of the Clinton administration had internships. And I applied for one summer to be an intern at the, um, um, at the, um, uh, um, and excuse me, I, I said Carter White House, I believe. Uh, the Carter White House, So, uh, and when Zbigniew Brzezinski was the National Security Advisor. Mm -hmm. So during that period, I applied for an internship, and I ended up working in between my graduate work for one summer um, in the European section. When I finished all of my uh, graduate work, with the exception of the writing of the dissertation, I came back and I was hired into the National Security Council uh, and again, working in the European section. And which administration was this? The same administration, the Carter administration. It wasn't a uh, internship position, but it was a staff assistant position in the Carter administration. And I was there during the period of the transition from Carter to Reagan and uh, then stayed on and was elevated and became a staff member. Uh, what was, and, uh, worked can I N and worked at the NSC mm -hmm. for seven years therefrom as director of European and Soviet affairs. What was working with Brzezinski like? Uh, well, first of all, uh, he was someone who uh, was a very close friend of Samuel Huntington. So I want to begin with uh, the fact that to me, it was very, um, very uh, thrilling and a great opportunity to work with someone whose writings I had read and to be able to have the ability to observe him and also some interaction with him firsthand. So for me, it was a tremendous opportunity, both as a student, meaning still working on my PhD, and then at the same time, also uh, the beginning of my professional career. May I also add in this mix that Zbigniew Brzezinski was also there, but also William Odom, Bill Odom, 
and some people may also remember him as a great scholar and someone who wrote extensively about Soviet military issues. And so for me, it was just um, an honor, a privilege, a wonderful opportunity um, that as a graduate student and then as growing my own professional career, it was very, very exciting for me. I mean, uh, at least Brzezinski these days, I mean, he's, you know, you don't really get more hardline uh, anti-Putin than uh, Brzezinski, it seems, these days. Well, he's had uh, views that I would say, uh, and myself included, that I haven't always agreed with. Let me give you an example, because you mentioned hardline. He came out with an article, um, I believe it was in Foreign Affairs, uh, calling for a Finlandization of Ukraine. Can you explain what that means? Basically, it means that's the term he used, but it basically meant that Ukraine should be neutral. It should not become a member of NATO, uh, and it should state that it isn't desirous of being a member of NATO, and also that for uh, affiliation with the European Union, that uh, Ukraine might get that, but much down the road. My view is I think it's up to the Ukrainian people to decide and to make that determination, not to have other countries decide that determine, you know, that decision, make that decision for them, that it is their right to determine how they want to be affiliated. Uh, and in this end and toward this end, as we know, the president of Ukraine, Poroshenko, he has reached out and has indicated he wants an affiliation and he did that immediately when he became president. He wants an affiliation with the EU, the um, European Union. So, so when uh, for, for for how many years were you at the NSC then? This this uh, I was at around. the NSC for seven years, a very long period of time. And, and this was the the Carter and Reagan uh, administration. It for was both? the very end of the Carter administration, and from 1980 because there were elections, and then you know going on. So um, I was there 1980 to 1987. So That's not including the internship that I mentioned, which mm-hmm. was for a few months the year before, you know, in 79. So, you know, Carter and Reagan had pretty uh, dynamically opposed or or uh, you know, perhaps they had conflicting uh, worldviews, uh, you know, you, you might say. Um, how did that change in administration? How did you experience that personally? As, as a staffer in the, like, what issues were you working on? And were there any, like, big sweeping changes that came when the new administration took over? Well, I would say that um, uh, uh, some of the biggest changes when President Reagan came in, he came in and he indicated quite clearly his strong belief in, in terms of uh, freedom and uh, also uh, his concern about the policies, the aggressive policies pursued by then the Soviet Union. And uh, as you may recall, he gave, uh, a, you know, a number of speeches that had been cast. Uh, one was, uh, uh, the term was used, was the uh, evil empire speech, where he talked about uh, the denial of freedoms uh, in the Soviet Union. Did about- you see an early draft of that speech? Uh, aggressive policies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, uh, Tony Dolan was the person who wrote that speech. 
uh, uh, President Reagan, I'd like to say, was someone who, of every speech, he had his own input. So regardless of who, whether I or others or a group of us or the speechwriters, President Reagan was always very hands-on with the speeches that were written at the White House. In fact, he always took the time and the effort to sit down with the speechwriters, to sit down with the staff. Um, you know, when the speech of uh, Berlin, tear down that wall, which is another one. You know, um, uh, I remember that he sat down and there was quite a discussion with the, the staffers and the writers who were involved in it. So I want to make that point because mm -hmm. it's not really about the staffers. It's actually more about the president on do that you, one. Do you remember the first time that you, you met uh, Reagan when he was president and you were working for him? Uh, I do. But, you know, if, 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 if I may, may just say and give one more example yeah. to your earlier question, if you don't mind. Please. It, you know, he, uh, he was very strong on not only the issue of freedoms and human rights, and he was the one who spoke out about the dissidents and the people who were denied freedom and who were in gulags. But he also gave another speech that was cast as Star Wars, which was the Strategic Defense Initiative speech, which also addressed the concern about military aggression and the kind of concern. So why I put this forward, because you asked me about the contrast, you know, uh, President Carter was the one who dealt with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And so when Reagan came in, you know, there was this issue of the need for such a defense and really stating that such a deterrent and a kind of not just defensive but offensive stance. Yes, I remember very well. I was contacted by then the national security advisor was uh, Judge Clark, uh, who uh, William Clark, uh, who has uh, since passed away. He was the former deputy secretary of state. He phoned me at like. I think it was close to 5.30 a.m. or 6 a.m. in the morning. And he said, please, I want you to come immediately into my office, get yourself mobilized, show up by 7, I believe it was roughly, and I want you to come with me. You're going to brief the president this morning on Poland. And I said, I am. All right, I will be there. <laughs> so I remember it quite vividly. I mobilized rapidly. I got myself uh, into uh, the National Security Advisor's office, and we proceeded into the president's office. And uh, I was sitting there thinking, here I am. And I happened to be, by the way, at the time, um, in my early 20s. I was about 24, uh, maybe 25 years old. And I was thinking, you know, I'm about to brief the president of the United States on Poland and where the issue of Poland was at that time, because there was a uh, during that period also, as you may recall, the imposition of martial law in uh, Poland that took place. And let me just say anecdotally, if I may, everything I that's yeah. been, has been said about the president, the president was very conversational. He had uh, a humorous story that he shared. He wanted to show that he had a card, a business card, because Miss America was in with him the day before visiting him. 
and she gave him a card that said that he was Mr. Everything. And so <laughs> he was sharing that with us and saying that he felt that, you know, in looking over the card, that there were some characteristics that uh, needed to be added on the card. Uh, and so in a very humorous way, President Reagan, in true style, always, always had a story or a joke you know, to share in the beginning of any meeting. Uh, just very, very warm, very engaging, very delightful person. That's funny. I had I had spoke with uh, Chris Hill, who I, I presume you know. Um, yes. And he was talking about how he was escorting La Cualesa around the, the country and escorted him into a meeting with President Reagan, who made it like a sort of off-color joke <laughs> referencing La Cualesa's, um uh, you know, reputation as uh, for, I guess, um, being a little uh, licentious. <laughs> yeah. Well, he uh, was uh, a, a, a really a, a quite a uh, quite an engaging yeah. leader. Um, so uh, you were there for most of the Reagan administration, I, su- I suppose. What happened? Uh, where did you go after that? After that, I went over to the State Department. Uh, where I became the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs. My portfolio broadened because the nature of what I worked on. I actually, at one point in my years there, ultimately uh, I was dealing with both multilateral and bilateral issues. So I had the United Nations, Mm -hmm. the UN um, Human Rights Council, I also had uh, bilateral relationships. So I actually started moving away and not just dealing with only then Europe, but also with Latin America, with Asia, with Africa, the Middle East. Through Many mostly like humanitarian lenses. Uh, uh, this was, was during dealing the with human rights, human, human rights, rights issues. So a discussion on human rights issues, mm-hmm. the humanitarian component deals with, um, oh, uh, issues that we dealt with were concerning disabled, um, uh, some who, uh, people who, although this was not refugees, but people who, you know, were in need. But the fundamental issue was human rights in the Bureau. Uh, and this was, like, what was the big, what were the big human rights issues? I guess this was the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, right? Well, I was, it was at, uh, my transition was at the end of the, of the Reagan administration and into the George H.W. Um, Bush uh, administration. Um, the uh, father, who was vice president and then became president. Um, and in this case, uh, I would say that one of the, transitions that occurred during that period, and I'll mention two, one relevant to Europe and one in another area. One was uh, relevant to um, uh, discussions for the first time uh, in the case with the Soviet Union, uh, and then ultimately the transition and becoming uh, uh, ultimately Russia. We had, you know, um, uh, actually there was the dialogue on human rights. Up to the point in time, and particularly there was through Helsinki, uh, the Helsinki Final Act, there was no engagement per se directly on human rights issues and cases. And actually the Bureau got very involved and sat down and was dealing and had an across-the-table discussion and dialogue on human rights. So that was something that stands out in my mind as something that was 
really uh, quite distinctive and was a, a significant change. Because up to that point, we were giving lists, but basically the response was, this is not an issue that we're going to discuss or engage on. That was the answer from Moscow. But let me give, in a different part of the world, I was also very, very involved because in 1989, there were the elections in Burma. Uh, and during that period, actually, the National League for Democracy as a party won. And I was very involved with testimony and other issues right when there was that student demonstration and a lot of uh, interesting evolutions and developments were occurring in Burma. But uh, Did you meet Aung San Suu Kyi at that time? Um, I had not met her at that time, but I had the privilege of meeting her uh, a number of times when she visited here in the United States, and I visited Burma uh, just two years ago and went to her residence and had a wonderful uh, dialogue uh, with her. What but was what the context I'm for your to visit say, to, I've been to involved Burma. with this issue okay. for quite some time, and when those student demonstrations took place, after they won, there was a crackdown. The regime did not recognize the outcome of the elections. There was a crackdown. She was imprisoned uh, in different capacities, as we know, over the years. And so uh, it's, it's, it's very striking to me, thinking back on that period and then where we are now. Um, I know we, we just have a, a few minutes left, but I do want to ask you a, a bit about your time in the Bush administration, the second Bush administration. Um, how, how, I mean, how I was, was it? Under Secretary of State yeah, for Global absolutely. Affairs. Absolutely. So how, how did you become Under Secretary of State for Global Affairs? Uh, what was your, did you have a relationship with Colin Powell? Uh, or how, what was your, your connection? Your, your, um, how, did, how did that come about? Well, I uh, 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 several uh, things. I worked on the campaign. So I, in terms of, as you know, when these positions are selected and made, it's a two-step process. Uh, the secretary of, normally a secretary of state will make recommendations. And yes, I have uh, the uh, privilege and honor of uh, Having the uh, being recommended and uh, supported and by uh, Secretary Powell, um, at the same time, also as you know, with presidential appointees, that also uh, the White House also has its involvement in positions and you know these types of positions that are advanced. So in that case too, as I said, I worked in the campaign, and so also uh, there. Um, uh, also had contact with those at the White House and from the White House side, and in that case, uh, President Bush. So, who called you, or did you get an email? Like, what's how, how did you find Secretary out? Secretary Powell. For this? Secretary Powell said, uh, was the one who phoned me, and we had an interview, and uh, it moved uh, it moved uh, forward, and also his. His people, actually, the call was made, when I say Secretary Powell, the call was made by the staff that was there during transition. So you come in, you're interviewed. Also, his deputy, Richard Armitage, was also, I mean, you know, there was a transition team. So you mm -hmm. have the secretary, you have the deputy, and you also have his staff. And that your, that position, Under Secretary of State for Global Affairs, didn't even exist the first time you were at the State Department, Right. That is correct, because the first person who was in it was Senator Tim Worth, who held the position in the Clinton mm -hmm. administration. 
Yes. And, and uh, then my other predecessor was Frank Loy, who uh, also held the position as well in the Clinton administration. And, and the idea is it's the, it's the undersecretariat that deals with problems like without passports that are not regionally focused, that are more thematic, right? No, uh, that position, that position is no. a very uh, 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 broad position. Right. It deals with all transnational issues, including, these are the ones, um, uh, the Bureau of International Narcotics Law Enforcement, Mm-hmm. It deals with uh, uh, the Bureau of Oceans Environment Science and also the science advisor to the Secretary of State. It had the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, Labor in it. It also had the uh, envoy dealing with religious freedom. I also had in my lane the International Women's Issues Office. Mm-hmm. I also had the Office of Trafficking in Persons. I had the Office of Refugees, Population, Refugees, Migration. I also had, um, uh, as well, uh, the, um, uh, I've mentioned science, but I also Mm -hmm. had the Health Office, uh, which also was in that line. So some of the offices and bureaus that I'm referencing to you, there's been a reorganization. Uh, It was Global Affairs and G. It's now become J. The title of the undersecretaryship has been modified. Some of the bureaus are still the same. Some things have been added. Some things have been taken out. But I've defined for you the issues, the broad scale and scope of issues that yeah. were in my line would you, during my tenure. In our, in our final moments, what would you say was the highlight of your, your nine years, um, your, your personal highlight as undersecretary of state? You know, that's, I'm going to say that's a very difficult question to answer because there were many, many highlights. Can you pick one? Uh, I mean, really. Um, well, I will give one, which is I worked extensively on the issue of Afghan women. And uh, during the Bush administration, uh, President Bush, then with President Karzai, launched uh, uh, the U.S.-Afghan Women's Council. And uh, for me, sitting across the table from those very courageous Afghan women who put together a very vigorous agenda for education, for health, for um, uh, uh, law and politics, and for economic empowerment, all of these agenda areas were put forth by them and areas that they wanted to see improved. Being connected with them, seeing them grow, being personally involved with each of their stories was not only very moving, but very, very inspiring, I have to say. I'm going to give you one more. Mm -hmm. I also was the president's um, envoy to um, uh, Northern Ireland, and it was on my watch for my last two years where there was the devolution of power that occurred in uh, in Northern Ireland. That's part of the Good Friday uh, Agreement, right? Well, the Good Friday Agreement, the St. Andrews Agreement, but this happened, it was the devolution of power, and basically you had, as we know, the first uh, minister and the deputy first minister, the first minister was at the time Ian Paisley, the deputy first minister was Martin McGuinness, I went to the actual ceremony and led the delegation, which included Senator Ted Kennedy. 
and and his wife. And I have to say, being there, thinking about the work that, yes, that Senator George Mitchell and through the Good Friday Agreement, working with all the parties concerned, and I'm not naming all of them, but there were many, including the work of, you know, uh, 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 the, the British, uh, the Irish, as well as those on the ground in Northern Ireland, no less the American support and my predecessors in the position. But I single out George Senator George Mitchell because he is the one who put forth and negotiated the Good Friday Agreement. Mm -hmm. But that was very heartening, and I felt very privileged to be there. That was a beginning of a very new, hopeful, and promising chapter in terms of Northern Ireland. And I'm going to give you one more, and and we will close on. I'm sensitive of your time. I was, and I'm appreciative. I was... I also was the special coordinator on Tibet. And uh, in this case, um, this was also an issue. The um, His Holiness, uh, the Dalai Lama, uh, my first meeting uh, he held with then-President George Bush uh, was in the White House, in the residence. And I mention this because His Holiness will be celebrating his mm-hmm. 80th birthday as will, well, it's not his 80th, but George Bush, President, former President George Bush, will be celebrating his birthday. They both share the same birthday on July 6th. Do they make any and jokes about that I together? will say that one of the high points, by the way, of my tenure in dealing with that issue was when uh, His Holiness came up to Capitol Hill to receive the gold medal and to be uh, acknowledged and recognized for his very being. And President Bush was there, along with, at the time, Speaker Pelosi, among others. It was quite, quite a can imagine, what was that conversation between the Dalai Lama and and Bush like? Uh, I would say uh, very moving, uh, very spirited. As you know, President Bush made a number of visits to, to China, and one of the issues that he's talked about not only privately, but publicly, and that is about the importance of religious freedom. He himself has always been someone who has felt and firmly believed in the importance of religious freedom, and he talked to this issue on a number of occasions. But I want to thank you very much. Yeah, thank it's, you so much for your time. Enjoyable. This well, is thank great. You. Thank you so much. I'll let you go. Okay, I appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you, and I look forward to your being in touch. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. All right. Thank you all for listening and for kind of taking a little trip down memory lane. Uh, You know, I reposted this because this was, I think, episode number 90 uh, in terms of those very long form personal profiles that uh, I do. Uh, I'm now up to like about 190. So this was 100 long form interviews ago, but it's also a good demonstration that uh, some of those older conversations that I have are as relevant today as, as they were back when I first recorded them. So if you haven't done so already, you can access all of those older episodes by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes. I think iTunes, if you're not a subscriber to the podcast, only displays the previous 300 episodes. But my archive goes much deeper than that. So just be a subscriber, hit that subscribe button as opposed to listening to individual episodes and 
all those older uh, episodes should appear for you. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.